From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In the murder of George Floyd, a cascade of guilty verdicts. Find the defendant guilty. Find the defendant guilty. Find the defendant guilty. Coming up, reaction from Coloradans whose work will continue on racial justice and police accountability. Plus, tending to the mental health of people of color for whom the threat of police brutality remains ever-present. Later in the show, a Colorado college student navigates her complicated family life in a new podcast. Me and my younger brother, Ari, we're products of artificial insemination. We're from the same donor who my mom and dad picked out online. But legal dad is no longer in the picture, and she's never met bio dad. The story just won an NPR student podcast competition. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Sentencing for the former officer who murdered George Floyd will take place in about two months. Derek Chauvin was convicted of two murder charges and manslaughter. Meanwhile, the Justice Department announced this morning it will investigate Minneapolis police looking for a pattern and practice of misconduct. That is to say, the work of police oversight and of rooting out systemic racism continues for so many today, including our guests. Nick Mitchell was Denver's independent monitor for eight years, overseeing the police and sheriff's departments. He left earlier this year to provide oversight of jail reform in Los Angeles County. And hi, Nick. Hi, Ryan. And Professor Stephanie Rose Spaulding is founder of Truth and Conciliation, a nonprofit that fights systemic racism. She's in the Women's and Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And Spaulding is pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in the Springs. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. Professor, I just want to state that you speak for yourself, not UCCS. Uh, Just after the verdict, you tweeted... Imagine things being so utterly depraved that you bless God when another is sent to prison. A victory, yes, you wrote, but we are so far from justice, God help us. In what ways do you see the country being furthest from justice today? Well, again, if we listen to the words of uh, Keith Ellison yesterday, and just being a a Black person in America, justice is not simply holding someone accountable for their actions. Justice would be Black Americans not fearing the terror of encountering law enforcement, not fearing the terror of biking down the wrong block or walking in the wrong grocery store because it might be the end of one's life. Justice would be George Floyd being with us today and the myriads of other like Elijah McClain and Devon Bailey and Breonna Taylor still being alive right now. 
And we are not in that place. We are still witnessing the trauma. Just yesterday in Columbus, Ohio, a a 16-year-old was taken from us at the hands of law enforcement. So justice would be that, that Black people have the right to life in the United States that is equitable and equal to the right to life that others have. You mentioned Keith Ellison, Minnesota Attorney General, Elijah McClain in Aurora, Devon Bailey in uh, Colorado Springs, where you join us from. Uh, And Professor, the refrain after the murder of George Floyd was Black Lives Matter. As a Black woman in America, do you feel today that this country values your life more than it did in May of 2020 when Floyd was killed? Not particularly, right? Um, And in little over a year, yes, a lot of outcry has been done, but legislation has not been moved, not on a mass scale that would signify we have not had a cultural reform in terms of the way that policing practices happen across the country. Um, So there are still systemic ways deeply rooted in which the, the devaluing of Black life continues to play out in the United States. We'll talk a bit about some of the legislative changes that have happened in Colorado, what you make of those when it comes to police conduct and oversight. Uh, we heard the prosecutor tell jurors that the Chauvin trial was not a referendum on police or policing. Quoting here, the defendant is not on trial for being a police officer. He's on trial for what he did. And yet Floyd's killing sparked protests nationwide over police brutality and racial injustice. Nick Mitchell, do you think this verdict could signal a shift in police accountability? Well, listen, you know, the verdict, uh, it was really the only plausible verdict that the jury could have reached, given the evidence before. It was the only just verdict. Um, hopefully it brings some measure of peace uh, to the family, uh, or, or at least um, they won't be re-traumatized by the acquittal of the former officer. But, you know, I think we should be very clear that policing in America is in crisis. There is a, a crisis of loss of confidence in police departments and policing as an institution in this country that will have major consequences for officers and for the community. And while this verdict is, you know, an important, it's an important one on one individual case, as the professor already said, it does not fix the systemic conditions that gave rise to the the encounter with George Floyd uh, or that ultimately gave rise to to his death. I think what was most interesting to me about uh, about the case and, yep. and the trial was the fact that officers came forward to testify against Derek Chauvin, and that's incredibly rare. You know, in my experience as the monitor uh, of the Denver Police Department, um, you know, I, I saw that very infrequently. And I think if this verdict is going to have you know broader implications for fixing the gap in trust. It, it, police departments will read it and view it as a mandate that they begin changing the culture so that officers will come forward and speak out when they witness injustice being committed by fellow officers. 
I appreciate that perspective. In other words, uh, are you saying that there is a code among officers not to 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 sort of stray in any way from backing up someone else on the force? There is a culture. There are norms of behavior inside police departments, um, and and some of them encourage officers to do you know very positive things. Others do not encourage positive behavior. Um, and one of the norms that you know we see uh, inside many police departments in America is that um, it, it's disfavored, it's stigmatized to come forward and speak out against a fellow officer who has engaged in an act of brutality or misconduct. There have been some very interesting programs developed around the country um, to try and change that norm. Um, and, and actually the Denver Police Department is part of one of those uh, programs, which I'm, I'm pleased about. Um, but I think a lot more needs to be done. You know, Police need to take ownership that that is a problem that must be fixed and it, and it needs to be fixed with urgency. This seems like a good opportunity to remind folks that the police accountability law, a new law here in Colorado, did a whole host of things. One of them is a duty to intervene so that if an officer sees a fellow officer using improper force, uh, that cop has a duty to say something, to intervene. The uh, law also banned carotid and chokeholds. It means individual officers can be sued. Uh, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, do you see Colorado's law as something of a roadmap the rest of the country should follow or as a half measure? What's your sense? Absolutely. I see it as um, steps forward. Of course, we know that it's just the beginning of the kind of transformation that we need. But to to the point of just what it took in order to get this conviction, we had a 17-year-old girl who did not know what to do in terms of intervention, but she had the wherewithal to record what was happening. And we watched as three other officers stood there and did nothing. They weren't moved or motivated to do anything in terms of intervention as Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. So compelling officers to abide by their oath of office and to intervene when there is harm happening to other individuals is necessary across the country, making sure that they are personally accountable for their actions. Again, they have been able to hide behind the shield and um, the culture of policing to be protected at the expense of taxpayers. So I think that these are all parts of a way forward, but it's certainly not the end of, of, of things. The teenager you referenced, Professor Darnella Frazier, who shot the now infamous video of the interaction in Minneapolis. I thought a lot about Darnella Frazier and what uh, mm-hmm. that position must have been like for her. Uh, you know, the work to address systemic racism goes beyond capitals and courtrooms into people's everyday lives. And that's something you stress with your nonprofit Truth and Conciliation. What is the community, the, the kind of daily in our lives work you want to see moving forward, Professor? Absolutely. We first have to be able to acknowledge and hold ourselves accountable for the way in which white supremacist ideology is 
permeates the very fabric of the United States, the culture of the United States, through our education, all the way to our legal justice and government institutions. And so if Americans are not grappling with that history and speaking and telling the truth about that history, as well as the very present every day, if we are not doing that work, then we are not rooting out the root cause of how policing has gotten to this place in the United States, how these disparities in the criminal justice system continue to persist this day in the United States. So we have to be having these conversations with our families around the dinner table. We have to be able to have these conversations in our classrooms, in our congregations, in our workspace about the way in which white supremacist ideology, the thought of whiteness, um, is is really like ripping us apart as a society. You mentioned the word history there. And Nick Mitchell, former Denver Independent Monitor, you talked about there being a crisis of confidence in law enforcement at this moment. How far do you think that crisis goes back? If you're, oh, you're asking Nick. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'd be interested in your thoughts as well, Professor. But, um, you know, I I think the crisis has been brewing uh, for, for many years. You know, policing as a profession is in many ways, you know, largely unregulated in this country. Um, And so there are sort of decades of, you know, problematic examples um, uh, that um, in probably the last decade uh, have become, you know, have come to light through the prevalence of cell phone video and body-worn camera video. Um, The crisis has become more public and a matter of public discussion, but it has been brewing for, for many decades. Um, and it's only now, you know, that the wave is cresting. And, and I think the time is right uh, for, for police departments to grapple with the history that the professor has been talking about and, and begin to fix these problems. Say just a few more words, Nick Mitchell, about policing as you see it being largely unregulated. You know, the the, uh, the criminal justice system is extremely deferential to police officers, uh, police testimony. Uh, we've seen over and over again uh, the failure of prosecutors to charge officers who've engaged in serious acts of misconduct. Um, there are, you know, the oversight structure uh, that provides you know, or that nominally provides oversight of policing around the country of the kind that I attempted to provide in Denver is deficient in many ways. Uh, and so you know, we have just sort of a, a patchwork of different systems that are supposed to be able to help hold uh, police accountable. Uh, and they really just don't function. You know, they're, they're, they're not working as, uh, as they're intended to work or as, you know, or as many of us hope that they would begin to work. Boulder has some version of oversight. There's a conversation going on right now in Aurora about what that will look like after the killing of Elijah McClain. And uh, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, I think one of the first times I met you actually was at a forum in Colorado Springs to discuss oversight there. Uh, that conversation continues in the Springs, doesn't it? 
It does as it should, because again, we don't have oversight in Colorado Springs. We have a community advisory, you know, committee. And Nick will tell you that is not the the <laughs> gold standard of, of what an oversight or accountability process looks like. And again, it is it's a long history. We just saw in Aurora the pushback when they did have some someone come in as a consultant to share with them, you know, parts of that history of what has been a crisis from foundation in policing in in the United States and officers weren't ready to hear that. They were were not ready to deal with that and um it it's reflected in the in the practices that we continue to see. Nick Mitchell, one argument that I hear from law enforcement, uh, this is true in the conversation in Colorado Springs, is that if you put too much regulation, too many constraints on officers, that will lead to bad decision making in the moment, in a highly charged, dangerous moment on the beat. Uh, care to say just a few words about that argument? Well, it, it, it really, um, my first reaction um, Listen, I understand the anxiety that's created when you have a sort of free hand and someone comes in and and begins to more closely scrutinize your decisions. I get that that can create anxiety for police officers or anyone. Um, But, you know, it, it, it simply it's not borne out by the evidence. Oversight does not make you make, you know, bad decisions. It's sort of, it's a bit of a preposterous argument if you really boil it down and think about it. It just, um, you know, means that there will be closer scrutiny of what you have done. Um, You will be asked questions about what you have done, and there will be an outside perspective brought to bear. That makes everyone safer. You know, that improves trust in the police. It makes police safer, and it makes the community safer. It's really a no-brainer. Well, I'm grateful to both of you for your time. Nick Mitchell, former head of Denver's Office of the Independent Monitor. He left that position earlier this year. Now he's overseeing the correction of Los Angeles County jails, along with the U.S. Justice Department. Stephanie Rose Spaulding, associate professor of women's and ethnic studies at UCCS, also senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Colorado Springs, and the author of Recovering from Racism, a guidebook to beginning conversations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Last night, after the verdict in the Floyd case, the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists held a support group. These are regular events, which they call emotional emancipation circles. But there was obviously a lot to unpack on Tuesday evening. Psychologist Anthony Young heads the association. He facilitated last night. And welcome back to the program, Anthony. Good morning. I wonder if you might first reflect on what you heard before the break from Stephanie Rose Spaulding and Nick Mitchell. Anything you want to expound on? I know you were listening. Oh, absolutely. In fact, just a couple of comments. One is that as um, Mr. Mitchell was remarking that there's been a loss in the trust in policing in this country, um, I would dare say that within the black community, there's never been a loss of uh, trust in, in policing in this country because there's been a lack of trust due to the uh, decades of a, of a police, um, uh, pardon me, <clears throat> police uh, uh, um, uh, abuse. So 
uh, trust has never really existed because typically when police show up, they show up with guns and typically people are hurt or abused in some way. That's very common. So I would dare say there's not been a lack of trust. I would dare say that uh, even more so, this uh, verdict uh, which occurred yesterday with the Chauvin case um, is one way in which we can have one clear example that perhaps police would be held accountable uh, in a way that they have never been held accountable before. My second thought is that certainly while on one hand, the verdict represents a significant step forward in as much that police uh, have never been convicted of killing unarmed African-Americans before, um, but it's, it's only one step in a thousand mile journey. Uh, we have a long history of uh, police violence and abuse against uh, African-Americans uh, even before um, slavery ended and ever since Reconstruction. So simply because we have one verdict, uh, while it's significant, it is not sufficient in itself. A step in a thousand mile journey, you say. Uh, Anthony Young, you mentioned about police showing up on the scene with guns. There is a movement in policing to make sure that there are more mental health professionals who are deployed because so often what is occurring is less a criminal matter and more a mental health matter. Uh, Denver has embarked on some of that. There are conversations about how to forward that in Aurora, for instance. Uh, I imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I imagine that's a direction you'd like to see more police departments head. Absolutely. Uh, some years ago, there was a movement toward having crisis and in, uh, intervention teams um, headed by law enforcement as well as mental health professionals and other um, um, support services. But that was very poorly funded and did not last long enough in Colorado nor across the country. So once again, I think that it's a wonderful um, movement and I do hope that it's adequately funded. We do know that unfortunately too often times there are uh, uh, societal changes made uh, temporarily, but there's a tendency to always go back to the default position, which is business as usual. Take me inside the support groups last night. Can you give me a sense for what the mood was? Well, first and foremost, uh, let me say that the emotional emancipation circles started in 2012 by the Community Healing Network, which is a national uh, organization, and a few years later, the Association of Black Psychologists, the national organization, began to assist them in conducting these emotional emancipation circles. In Colorado, we've been conducting them since 2016. So this is an ongoing effort to assist people of African descent uh, in overcoming the lie of white superiority and black inferiority and another way to help us embrace our humanity, which is oftentimes disrespected uh, by our government, by other people within our country. Ah, so, so, it's, so it's, these have a support yeah, these have a long history. In other words, uh, yes. they were not created simply around the Floyd case. So let's pick up this discussion after a break, and I'll ask you about the mood last night in these emotional emancipation circles. We'll continue our discussion in just a few minutes with the head of the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists, Anthony Young. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. 
Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. And in this upcoming season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something starts May 11th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Let's return to our conversation in the wake of the verdict in the murder of George Floyd uh, with the president of the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists. Anthony Young has a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Denver. He lives in Colorado Springs. And uh, we were saying before the break that you hold these emotional emancipation circles. And I wonder what the, the mood and the conversation was like while maintaining anonymity, of course, um, what what was the what was the room like last night, virtually speaking? Well, first and foremost, I believe there was a lot of relief um, in the room. We can uh, actually conduct the uh, emotional emancipation circles online because of COVID nineteen. Yeah. Uh, but we see everyone uh, in real time uh, online using Zoom. And the mood was that of certainly of a relief. Uh, and of course, there was some surprise because given the history of African-Americans being murdered by law enforcement in this country, there was doubt that there would be a conviction. We were very happy, of course, uh, uh, those who were present, that there was a conviction. But, but the uh, over, uh, uh, overall, there was an acknowledgement that this is just simply one verdict. It would not stop... Uh, law enforcement killing unarmed black people just because there's one verdict um, uh, regarding this, um, this this chosen child. So uh, I think there was uh, uh, perhaps even some joy that there was a conviction at last because once again, this is nothing new in terms of um, police killing uh, unarmed black people for mundane police stops, traffic stops, walking down the street, being a suspect uh, who does not fit the description of a perpetrator with, which was um, being sought. So uh, once again, I think it was something which um, will cause uh, some relief, but it's a chance to also take a breath because we do know that uh, white supremacy is real. We know that, and this was uh, discussed last night, that, that the police themselves are, a pro- are the product of a community that continue to produce people who have this this hatred, this disdain, or this disrespect for the humanity of people of African descent and other people of color. So it's not going to simply change once again because of one uh, conviction. But there is hope that perhaps the white community is now waking up to the fact that watching someone being murdered on on TV is is real. That this was really an assault against humanity. Um, and then there was also a, a discussion about the fact that um, white supremacy is a crime against my humanity and also against our humanity as a nation it and certainly a, a, a crime against the citizens of this world because it's so devastating in many ways. It's, it's, it's manifested through all, all the institutions within our nation. So it's, it, it's, it was just a, a wonderful time that we could acknowledge that there is a possibility of of, of uh, police officers being held accountable for their behavior of, of this type. 
You mentioned the experience of watching someone being killed. And one of the things, of course, that drew such attention and outrage to the George Floyd murder was the 9-minute, 29-second video of the now former officer's knee on Floyd's neck. There was another video just recently of the death of Dante Wright. And, you know, these become key pieces of evidence. But does seeing images like that over and over deepen trauma? Well, certainly uh, watching uh, the, the news media show the clip over and over and over, many times back to back, uh, instant replays of that type of violence. That just adds to the trauma. I would dare say it's very important that, that, our, that, that our country witness uh, those live streaming uh, incidents because for those who are in disbelief that such things happen, that's clear evidence that they do happen. But I would give you the example that what this reminds me of are the um, uh, civil rights marches during the uh, 60s, where the police were sticking uh, police dogs on demonstrators and the, and the fire departments hosing people down just because they were marching peacefully. When America saw those images, it shook up white America a lot to the point that we actually had support for a 1964 uh, civil rights bill. Mm. But we know that there's a tendency to go back to the default position, which is to just simply ignore that these things happen. Um, I would wonder whether or not two years, five years from now, there would be the same type of uh, energy around uh, police reform, uh, justice for uh, people who are being um, uh, confronted by law enforcement, or whether or not any of the changes that we're talking about today are going to really take hold because America has this tendency to go back to business as usual, which is never good for black people. I think what I hear you saying is that there is a question in your mind and in many others, I think we heard this reflected earlier in the program from Stephanie Rose Spalding, a question around momentum uh, and, and whether that will continue. I so appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the program again with us. You're very welcome. That's Anthony Young, president of the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists. He's a former national president, and he holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Denver. Young lives in Colorado Springs. Anya Steinberg isn't close to either of her fathers. It's a story the Colorado College student tells in the new podcast, He's Just 23 Chromosomes. It just won NPR's College Podcast Challenge. Steinberg will join us after we listen. A note that there's sensitive language and some frank sexual talk. Hi, I'm Anya, and today I'm going to tell you the story of an immaculate conception. It didn't happen in the Bible. It happened on my mom's lunch break, in a sterile room. What my mom likes to say about it is this. I f***ed a syringe, and then I had two kids. <laughs> Me and my younger brother, Ari, were products of artificial insemination. We're from the same donor, who my mom and dad picked out online. There was only one 
Cairo Bank in all of Minnesota. We went to them and there were no Korean donors. Um, I went back and, and why called. Why did you want a Korean donor specifically? Well, because dad was Korean. You couldn't just have any old Asian. <laughs> no, we weren't going to have. No. They ended up going through a cryobank in California where they chose donor 3046. He was a medical student at Stanford with good grades, or so I thought. And I swear to God, I thought we picked the doctor. Last year was the first time I tried finding my sperm dad in the cryobank's database. I typed 3046 into the search bar and immediately had to call my mom. And we picked the jazz musician. And then I remember when you guys said that to me, you and your brother, that we decided to go with the artist. It was like, well, you're an artist and you're Korean and he's Korean and he's an artist. That, that'd be cool. The cryobank gives limited information that you can access for free. Reading through his files, my mind was spinning. My brain couldn't keep up with my eyes. I was like, 165 pounds, medium tan skin, born in Seoul, Korea. <sighs> Plays trumpet. Outgoing. Dreams of directing a major motion picture. I was shook. I had this identity crisis. Like, who am I? My dad was supposed to be this straight-laced, studious guy, captivated by the intricate systems that make up the human body. And that made sense, because I liked systems too, just bigger ones. I was on track to become an ecologist. I was contemplating PhD programs and research conferences. But all of a sudden I was like, my dad isn't a doctor, my dad is creative. It's in my genes to be creative. And maybe that's why I'm sitting here today, making this podcast instead of applying to grad school. Our parents got divorced when I was in third grade and Ari was in kindergarten. At this point, we didn't know we were sperm donor kids. We had a tumultuous relationship with our dad. He didn't always treat us well, like he wasn't the most stand-up guy. But to us, he was still our dad. So despite the hard times, we kept trying to make it work. And that's the way our dad wanted it. I had this little file and I thought, oh gee, they'll become 21 and they'll have all these questions. And I thought, oh, I'll have the record. But then your dad burned all the records. It was super important to me that at some point we have to tell these kids. Now, your dad never wanted to. If he could keep it a secret from you guys forever, then you would f forever love and adore him as dad, like all-encompassing dad. Maybe our dad was right to want to keep the truth from us. Because when our mom told us, something broke. When Ari found out about Donor Dad, he said he was relieved. Like, my perception just changed from, you know, like, I felt like since I was his son, I owed him something. But, you know, finding out that you're not really related to this dude, I just felt like that was a relief off my shoulders because I could just be like, all right, this guy. <laughs> but, yeah, I just feel like it just, you know, gave me relief because it was kind of like my exit ticket. Sometimes I wonder if, when the truth was revealed, our dad felt relieved, too. The charade was up. The blood that was the bond that held us together dissolved. Ari and I started making excuses to ignore the custody schedule. And our dad started making excuses to skip our school conferences and orchestra concerts. Until one day we just didn't know each other anymore. Every other year or so now, he'll call on my birthday and leave a message. I was calling to wish you a happy birthday. I called last night, but I didn't hear back from you. I'll call you here and I'm like, I think you're out of school. Okay, bye. I only call back sometimes. I'd like to say I'm the headstrong one, and that, eventually, I decided to be super fulfilled and independent without a father. But that's Ari. 
I'm not looking for a dad in You're not on the market for no, dads. No, I'm not. It's, it's not. The dad market is closed. <laughs> Stocks are trending down. Because, <laughs> you know, I got me, so that's all I really need. Ari isn't even curious about who Sperm Dad is. I'm not that into, like, finding out. Why not? Yeah, I'm not really looking for, like, a father figure and some random stranger that... You know, just nutted into a cup. But I am obsessed. Sperm Dad is my glossy fantasy. Thinking about him, it's the kind of thing where I find myself melting holes in my ceiling with my eyes, just completely lost in my head. I imagine his voice would sound deep, oaky and reassuring. He wouldn't be like those serious Koreans. He would laugh and laugh, especially at what I said. He would teach me Korean and tell me all about why our family crossed the Pacific from Seoul to California. These sperm dad fantasies have a darker side, though. In all of the ways my dad failed me, sperm dad could too. And when that darker side creeps in, I feel... There's this Korean word, han. It has no direct translation in English. The best I can say about it is that it's this swirling mix of deep sorrow, resentment, grief, regret, and anger that some say lives inside every Korean. It's an echo of the traumas Koreans have experienced, from Japanese occupation to American imperialism and war. Apparently, it runs through our veins. It's written in the helixes of our DNA. Han has its tendrils wrapped around the Korean heart. Han is the only Korean word I know, which is fitting, because the only Koreanness I have lives in a man I've never met. Han is why I haven't called the cryobank yet, to see if I could reach out. I realize I don't even know if he's alive. And even if he is, it's possible the records are sealed, which means that if I wanted to meet him, I would tell the cryobank and then they would contact him and ask if he wanted to talk to me. If he said no, case closed. I would never get to know who he is, which seems so unfair. I wish I could just run into him on the street and get in his face, like waving my hands around shouting, hey, here's what I am. Don't you want to know that I was Earth Club president in high school? Don't you want to know that I used to pee my pants a little bit every time I laughed? Don't you want to know that I've read Harry Potter 14 times? Like a father, I wonder if he could love me despite, despite the fact that I could be a real know-it-all growing up. Despite the time when I was eight and I got mad and kicked my brother in the face. I've cheated on a test. I drank underage. I'm a nervous driver and once I crashed my car and totaled it. I wonder if he could forgive me. My mom miscarried a child before me, a girl. And she miscarried my little brother's twin. Sperm Dad has lost two kids he didn't even know he had. I wonder if he would mourn too. I'm scared the answer to everything will be no, but for the sake of this story, I'm going to be brave. Thank you for calling California Cryobank, a Generate Life Sciences company. If you are a new or existing donor sperm client, press 1. Thanks for listening. This podcast was written and produced by me, Anya Steinberg. Music was originally composed by my friend, Dan Archibald. And Anya's on the line with us now from Colorado Springs. Hi, Anya. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, what a cliffhanger. Have you found, <laughs> have you found your biological dad since you made the podcast? No, it's kind of a long process, actually, but I'm in the middle of, I reached out to the cryobank, and like I talked about in the podcast, he's an anonymous donor, so 
I can tell them that I want to get in contact with them and then they'll reach out to him. And if he answers back, who knows where in the world he is right now, but then we can maybe establish contact with each other. Yeah. And do you have confidence that they know where to find him? I, I just, I think of all of the things that could get in the way of a connection, you know, it, it must be kind of mind boggling for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking actually with a friend of mine who's adopted from Korea. Um, so slightly different situation than mine, but she was saying like, it never occurred to her the idea that maybe her biological mother isn't even alive. Like I have no idea where in the world he could be. He might not even be in America anymore. Um, so that, that is a weird feeling. And I don't know how they figure that stuff out. (laughs) Hopefully they have a phone number on file from 1994 or whenever. Right. So you're still trying to find him and just expound a bit on why that journey feels important to you right now. And and I wonder if that changes, if your reasons change or evolve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think they definitely have over my life. I think when I was growing up, it was just like a fun fact that I would whip out at like birthday parties. Like, oh, I I was made in a Petri dish, which isn't how it works. (laughs) Um, But now I feel like it's so much, it's tied to my identity so much. And I think like one of the, like for, and for Asian Americans, I feel like family histories and ties to culture are so important for like understanding our identity. And that's like a part of my Asian Americanness and like Korean Americanness that I haven't been able to explore really, because I don't have that kind of connection. I think so many of us reflect on what part of us is nature and what part of us is nurture. And you must do a lot of thinking about that. You know, what what of your destiny uh, is is the biological father and what of your destiny is is your family? What 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 do you what do you make of that? Yeah, that's I mean, that's one of the biggest questions that and realizations that kind of like have been swirling around in my mind is like I talked about in the podcast, I really thought I grew up thinking that he was a doctor. So I was like, that's why I like science. And that's why I'm going to go be an environmental scientist some days because then that makes sense because my mom's not good at math, but my dad was. Hmm. Um, but really it turns out he's not. And that was like, that information came to me right when I was questioning, like, do I even like doing experiments on trees in the forest or, or like, you know, counting animal populations. Um, yeah. And so I, I definitely believe that nature has more of an impact than maybe we think it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like even if he isn't like family in the traditional sense, I feel connected to him through the fact that we share genes. How has yeah. it how has it been to speak publicly about this aspect of your life? I mean, you said earlier that you wouldn't have any qualms kind of whipping this out at a cocktail party, but a podcast <laughs> is very different and you have less control over people's reactions, you know? Uh, what's it been like? Yeah, that's <laughs> it's been crazy. I don't think that when I made this, I thought that people would actually ever hear it because I didn't expect to win and then end up on the radio like this. Uh-huh. Um, and let me just remind, so been... let me remind listeners that you won NPR student podcast competition, college edition. So yeah, this has gotten into uh, a lot of hands that you didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I realized that like my 
professor and my advisor at school had listened to it. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of really personal information. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's been something that I've had to become comfortable with. And I consider myself like a pretty open book. And if people asked me about these things, I wouldn't hesitate to say, but I kind of just like put it out there for everyone to listen to now, no matter who they are. Um, and it's kind of out of my hands a little bit. <laughs> Do you think that your desire to find the donor would be as strong if you were closer to your legal father? I don't think so. Because I think a lot of, like, for better or for worse, um, I think a lot of the, like, hopes that I pin on my donor dad have to do with the fact that that's not a relationship I've gotten to have in my life, like a positive male role model or like male adult figure that I can trust mm -hmm. or, you know, a connection to culture um, and family history that I like care about learning about. And I think that if I had those things from, from my non-biological father, I wouldn't be searching for them there's still. A, yeah. There's an inherent longing that I hear you know, many kids who are the offspring of sperm donors find that they have siblings, additional siblings. Have you wondered about that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny. Um, well, I mentioned in the podcast that I searched in the donor database to see like who my dad was. And you can actually still buy vials of his sperm in the <gasps> database. So I could be having siblings like born right now oh. or being conceived right now. Wow. Okay. I can see why that, <laughs> why that was a realization. I guess as we wrap up, was it important for you to get your mom and your brother's blessing to make this podcast? A hundred percent. I, I wouldn't have made it. I had to do some convincing, um, to let them like, to let, have them let me record them. And I think if they had said no, I would have respected that. And it was so important to me when making it that I was empathetic and I like, I want to present them in a way that they would be proud to be presented, you know, because obviously this has ended up all over the radio and the internet. And yeah, I just want like the way that I portrayed them to be with love and not to be like exploitative or like trying to get their story um, for a big scoop or like, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. Well, I, I'm longing for a second episode, not to put any pressure on you. Anya, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and the second episode is, could be in the works if could... I ever hear back from Mr. Donor Dad. So. Mr. Donor Dad, another cliffhanger. Anya Steinberg, senior at Colorado College and winner of NPR's student podcast competition, College Edition. The podcast is called He's Just 23 Chromosomes. The Sand Creek Massacre will be the subject of a big show next year at History Colorado. It's a second try for the museum, and CPR's Corey Jones reports this time indigenous people will play a big role. In November 1864, hundreds of Cheyenne and Arapaho had gathered in eastern Colorado. They hoped to negotiate peace with the territorial government. Instead, U.S. cavalry attacked the village. The troops brutally killed more than 200 people, mostly women, children, and elders. It was the deadliest day in Colorado history. Otto Braided Hair, whose ancestors survived the massacre, says that trauma has lasted for generations. We still 
have strong feelings, emotions about our history and what happened to our old people. The History Colorado Center in Denver first tried to do an exhibit on the Sand Creek Massacre nine years ago, but it closed after just 45 days. That's because of criticism from tribal members who had little input in its development. Braided Hair says they wanted to be involved in telling the story. We haven't had that, didn't have that in the earlier times. It was a hard lesson to learn. That's Shannon Vorrell. She directs exhibit planning for History Colorado. Vorrell says after they pulled the exhibit, her staff started a partnership with three Cheyenne and Arapaho tribal groups. History Colorado has also worked closely with Ute tribes on a Ute Indian Museum in Montrose and a related exhibit in Denver. So that gave me a lot of experience in this work and the listening that it requires. The National Endowment for the Humanities has granted History Colorado $400,000 for its new Sand Creek exhibit that will help pay for museum staff to visit tribal members on reservations in other states. Some of the money will go to consultants. This time around, Otto Braided Hair will be working with History Colorado as a member of the Northern Cheyenne. Because it happened to the tribes, most people think, well, that's tribal history. It's not. It's everybody's history. It happened in Colorado, so it's a history of Colorado. And then it's a U.S. history belongs to the public and needs to be told. The exhibit will also explore the tribe's histories and contemporary cultures. And Braided Hair says he hopes that it brings some healing. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. And this new Sand Creek exhibit will be on the top floor of History Colorado Center in Denver for at least five years. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. Keep it tuned to CPR News and KRCC.